the two divides. In this episode of Basic Freedoms, Ari Gold talks to writer Daniel Pinchbeck. Daniel's work encompasses political, social, ecological issues, as well as psychedelic chemicals and visionary plants. His books include Breaking Open the Head, A Psychedelic Journey into the Heart of Contemporary Shamanism, and 2017's How Soon Is Now. You can also watch episodes and follow us at basicfreedoms.tv. Yeah, I mean, I'm a New Yorker, so I, you know, uh, I've spent 50 years of uh, life in New York, and obviously the city changes. How, how do you spend 50 years when you're only 30, Daniel? Exactly. Is that crazy? <laughs> it's a psychedelics. They yeah. add extra years. Yeah. To your, yeah. Yeah. But uh, a lot of a lot of areas, you know, in a way, have like forfeited their original character, like um, South Street Seaport or the mm-hmm. Meatpacking District or, or Williamsburg. You know, so they constantly are going through these transformations and. It's usually in the direction towards, you know, hipster, you know, bourgeois, you know, money culture or whatever. I don't even necessarily think about it as, as bad or whatever. I just observe it at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's funny. The word hipster, I talked with my dad about it because, um, you know, he's a bohemian, a, a writer. He, he lived in San Francisco in the late 50s. Ginsburg invited him out there to live and he... Um, you know, was in San Francisco before the hippie phenomenon started, and the word hipster still to him is reminds him of that period, yeah. the late fifties, early sixties, when hipster was was really a hip hip cat. You know, yeah. someone who was on the cutting edge, someone who was living against society, somebody who was listening to jazz and maybe trying marijuana, and and I sometimes will say hipster to him and he'll say, oh, you know, and he thinks I mean somebody who's really (laughs) pushing the limits of the way to live. And I, I, I think there's probably nobody who uses the word that in, not in a slightly pejorative way, even though I'm sure there are plenty of people who would look at us and call us hipsters and wouldn't mean it as a compliment, but yeah, but, but a, lot of, a, lot, a lot of those things that were once edgy are now totally assimilated into right. a much larger middle-class culture, right? Like people, you know, smoke drugs and, you know, marijuana and have casual sex and meditate and do mm-hmm. yoga. Like those things were super edgy a few decades ago. So that yeah, just shows true. you how culture progresses, you know, and in a way, yeah, the hippie, a lot of the hippie ethos has been just assimilated into the sort of hipster bourgeois society now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and there's, you know, money, you know, the uh, there's a, this book, The Conquest of Cool. Did you ever hear about it by Thomas yeah. Frank? Yeah, yeah. Where he looks at like how like the sort of radical tropes of the '60s were then like seamlessly integrated into the marketing uh, right. machinery. One of my favorite books on media is this book by Thomas DeSingotina called Mediated, mm-hmm. and he talks about what he talks about is the blob, like the the power of the media, mediated experience to kind of like assimilate like everything that threatens it or seems at all real and turn it into this like sort of. Uh, yeah, kind of this blobby thing, like that movie mm-hmm. The Blob that just keeps mm-hmm. eating everything, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I feel that that's like a constant process that's happening. Um, but, you know, I guess in a way, like when I think about, you know, I, mean, I, I, I like a lot of elements of this kind of, you know, hipster style culture, mm-hmm. you know, like um, I, I feel like sometimes like a terrible uh, anarchist, you know, radical ecologist, uh, revolutionary, because I actually think I want you know, to see more people being able to have right. these types of, uh, you know. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's easy to make fun of people going to yeah. do yoga or meditate, but it's great 
that people are doing yoga and meditating, even if some of them are jackasses. I mean, what intrigues me, though, is like, uh, you know, what would be another way that our society, like, what would be the next thing? Like, where, you know, like, uh, so, like, when I go to, like, Teotihuacan in Mexico City or Palenque, like, it feels there were these other, you know, ancient cultures that were just... You can just feel when you go to those places that there was stuff going on there that we just... It's like a totally different state of consciousness. You're talking about in the past. Yeah, yeah, in right. the past. Yeah, like, you know, you're seeing the relics now, but, like, mm-hmm. um, you know, their, their society was clearly not organized around buying, like, trinkets and, like, right. making your, you know... <laughs> how, did uh, they, how did they run an economy? Yeah. How did they grow? So maybe there's something really profound that, that we're, we're still ahead of us to, 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 to realize that would actually be transformative for this, for this society. Maybe it's, like... You know, ritual or, or, or experiences of the sacred or experiences of the psyche or something that's like beyond what we now even think about. Right. You know. Yeah, I think the experience of experiencing the sacred in in whatever form it's accessible um, is pretty crucial to any transformation we're going to make as a society. Thinking has to be a major part of it, but we also have to feel our way. Yeah. Um, and that's that's another thing that I think psychedelics are really useful for. I mean, a big question, yeah, I mean, do you find that, like, people are, do you think people are happier than they were, like, a generation or two generations ago, in average? Like, uh, do you feel like, uh, like, it's everything that, you know, the society gives you in terms of potential and comfort and so on makes you happy? Um, no. I mean, I, I, I know that there's a whole generation of people who, you know, the, the millennial generation who feels that they're being handed, a, you know, piece of shit as a, as a planet and yeah. as an economy. What do you think makes people happier? Um, I think having a mission and also maybe having more community would make people happier. Like, I feel like even, I mean, you know, like, I mean, I live alone. I have a daughter, uh, you know, in a different part of the city and a mother in a different part of the city. And I keep, I always think like, wow, if like everybody just lived in the same place, I could just like see them all the time. I, I would probably feel a lot happier, you know, yeah. so... I, I think that, you know, I guess that's what I argue in the new book is like maybe we're on this slow curve towards like reassessing and be like, oh, like forget these like single, you know, family units or nuclear families. Maybe it's more about re-tribalizing, like creating right. these larger extended communities and, you know, that have nomadic aspects and settled aspects. Like, you know, maybe that's like, yeah, like we, we've, you know, there's been a lot of imagination applied to the gadgetry you know, the, the wizardry of the gadgets, but we haven't applied as much imagination to how we could change society, like social relationships, you know, like, you know, could, you know, would people be happier with, you know, more people having, like, multi-partner relationships, you know, mm-hmm. where they're, you know, if they didn't have the fear, they're going to, like, lose the person they love or be alone or whatever, you know. I think geographical um, closeness is important in those cases. I think, you know, people get up in the morning and drive for an hour to work and they drive back for an hour in the afternoon like traveling long distance to go to an office where you're using like toner cartridge and styrofoam cups or whatever has no relationship to the ecology of the earth like most people's work right. it's just like they're doing this stuff that's subtracting from from the health of the planet as a whole and i think people feel that on some level there's like an underlying of like guilt or shame about it you know psychedelic chemicals and visionary plants here we go 
You can also watch episodes and follow us at basicfreedoms.tv. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's like, you know, it's been interesting to me having been a writer about psychedelics. Like, I found that musicians have definitely gravitated to my work from like electronic music DJs to like the band MGMT to like Sting or whatever. So I do, I do think there is like, uh, you know, musicians, like other artists, maybe more than other, some other areas of artists, you know, seem very willing to open their minds mm-hmm. using you know, pursuing these types of visionary experiences for new insights or new sounds. New sounds. <laughs> uh, music, in a way, is is the most present tense art form in the sense that if you play an instrument, the moment you play it, you're hearing it. Um, if you're a writer, um, filmmaker, uh, there's a huge amount of planning that goes into creating the story that you're telling and obviously that's true with writing music and, and producing an album or all that but Paint, painting, the, painting is pretty immediate too though no? See the yeah it's mark. true, painting is immediate except that a painter normally, and there are experimental painters, but a painter is working towards a final version of the painting when they say this, it's done but a, a musician if they're on stage it's not like they're racing to get to the end and say, aha, I finished it. You know, they're, they're, every moment on that path is the music. Whereas a painter, the only moment that the painting is right is when they say, okay, no more strokes. Psychedelics, I think, have an um, ability to throw people very viscerally into the present, particularly when there are people who uh, have difficulty doing so, they haven't done yeah. meditation, and, and so... Uh, musicians naturally inclined to seek presence. Yeah, and so and it's interesting to think about what the sounds that we associate with the types of you know musical approaches that seem somehow more like psychedelic. It's like overdubs or overtones right. or power chords or whatever. <laughs> right, but I mean Alan Watts talks about you know during the when LSD was first kind of blowing through America in the late sixties that you know. Life magazine would do a spread about LSD and everything would be, you know, higgledy-piggledy with um, prism images of naked girls dancing and everything's out of focus. But actually the experience of LSD, if, you know, his point was if you want to see it, you should have a crystal clear image of, you know, the mosaic on the top of a gorgeous church. And that is what LSD feels like you know is being is seeing beautiful the beautiful truth of reality in hyper clarity right but i guess but it's such an intensifier and it sort of re-sculpts our, our perception of like time and, and and so on that maybe like certain you know very intense types of music or dissonant structures i don't know there are different things that seem to maybe create like a metaphor in the brain that, mm-hmm. that connects to the psychedelic experience somehow. right well, you know, it's, it's quite interesting as people think of psychedelics as a, as a drug, like any other drug, but actually, they're, they're strangely enough, there are compounds that actually can cure addictive patterns or have really positive impacts on them. So in the 50s, they did studies with LSD and alcoholism. They were giving like mega doses of LSD to alcoholics, and they were finding that even one big trip would totally change somebody's path. And Bill Wilson, who was the founder of, uh, you know, 12-step or whatever, he wanted to incorporate LSD into that. Uh, but got pushback, I guess. Where, where do you think the pushback came from? Well, I mean, ultimately, you know, the negative, you know, kind of uh, idea around around these substances, you know, grew really strong. But, uh, yeah, now they're doing studies of, like, well, one substance that I explored is an African psychedelic called Iboga, 
and there's a lot of, you know, kind of evidence that that is a great tool for different types of addiction, like heroin addiction. There are clinics to use ayahuasca for heroin, or you know, it's it's it's, yeah. Then, then you know, there's also other studies about using different psychedelics to treat post-traumatic stress disorder and so on. Do you like, see boga as, as the male, where ayahuasca is the female psychedelic? Is that does that hold any weight with you as an idea? Sort of, yeah. I mean, I think I mean, I've definitely had even the last time I did ayahuasca, you know, I had sort of direct communication with this like female spirit uh, who was kind of like dancing around and uh, it felt like that was the spirit of this medicine. Mm -hmm. So yeah, strangely enough, and I felt this the opposite way around the aboga that it does feel like this Male. fatherly, you know, patriarchal kind of force. Yeah, yeah. but in, in, in positive patriarchy. Yeah, 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 definitely, yeah, right. yeah. And on the subject of Russell Brand... Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think that Russell is one of the uh, most intelligent people that I've ever met. Uh, and I feel lucky in a way that uh, he reached out to me after he saw this documentary that I made, uh, 2012 Time for Change, and then we hung out, we became friends. I think he actually, you know, as well, he's admitted that, like, you know, that he found a lot of ideas in my work that were very useful for him as he reformulated his kind of vision of who he was and, and what he thinks about. So he could sort of mixture of politics and spirituality and some ecology and a radical kind of sort of socialist anarchist politics at that are things that I think my work helped him to uh, to access you know mm -hmm. and, and from my perspective it's been interesting because he's taken ideas that I had and been a huge megaphone you know to get them to a much bigger audience right yeah and do you feel that that megaphone changes the uh, tonality of the message uh, I mean you know it's not just me obviously there are, he's, he's very you know like me he's a Gemini but anyway, he has a lot of different influences and so on um, I, you know, I think uh, it's amazing. Like, um, you know, it changes it in certain respects, but they're definitely core similarities. Right. You know. Right. Daniel explains the significance of stories in his eyes. You can also watch episodes and follow us at basicfreedoms.tv. Yeah, I mean, I think that humans are like uh, very much kind of uh, guided by myth, myths and stories. Like, I really don't think we can do very much without them. And you, you learn that a lot when you have a child because you can see the way they are like hungry for like f stories or, or tales. It's almost like a vitamin that they need just to, just to get through the, their, their lives, you know? Uh, and I think all of us are like that. And like, yeah, like, you know, beyond simple biological functions, why we do anything has some kind of story. Like, I have a story that, you know, I have an, you know that I'm going to be a great you know, writer or something. So then mm -hmm. I try to make that story real or something, you know. Um, but yeah, so we have a lot of stories in our society that, like, aren't really functioning very well anymore. I mean... Yeah, there's the... Uh, uh, that writer, Corton... Uh, what's his first name? Oh, David Corton. David Corton yeah. has has a book called Change, Change the Story, Change the Future, where he talks specifically about this idea that we have we have a series of stories that we've gone through as a species um, and the ones that we're living under now are kind of combinations of the distant patriarch yeah. story and the idea of um, sacred money and markets and that that um, money if left to flow freely will create the greatest good um, and simultaneously we have this dis distant patriarch who is kind of a father figure that in, in many religions is going to punish the bad and reward the good at, at some point. Yeah. Um, 
And both of these stories lead to a situation where, particularly the, the sacred money and markets story, where um, we have created corporations which functionally are um, are like the robots that they read about in science fiction, you know, yeah, exactly. seventy years ago. In that, like robots, they're man-made. Like robots, they don't have a soul. Like robots, they cannot die per se. Um, and they have a purpose that's programmed into them, which is to produce more money. Um, and there is no fail-safe to say, okay, if you're producing more money, but you're destroying an entire um, part of the planet that we're sharing, uh, there's nothing in that robot to say, oh, I should stop. The two talk more about corporations. Yeah, we were just talking about corporations and the fact that, like, the story that we have about them is that they're these engines of progress and they're, you know, on their own. They're like, you know, creating, you know, markets which are healthy and, and you know, but and in a sense, they are amazing. Like, they're these incredible social tools that we've created. You talked about as robots. But if we were to think about humanity as a collective organism, maybe we could also think of corporations as like the primitive versions of like organs within the organism, like mm-hmm. a media company. It's like taking in the raw data of the world and converting it into like bits that then lead to the organism like following certain pathways or something mm-hmm. or uh, energy companies like uh, the blood circulation system that's pushing energy through the whole system and, and then maybe we could think about yeah like you know our organs don't compete against each other don't fight against the rest of the cells in our body they work cooperatively mm-hmm. so maybe ultimately we'll redesign the underlying system in which these corporations operate so that it's uh, you know based on kind of securing the, the collective health of the whole Right. Yeah. Which requires changing our, our basic framework yeah. because the idea that competition leads to um, uh, the greatest good is, is, is pretty ingrained into our culture. Yeah. Uh, I and mean, there, wh- there, whether that's you know, Darwin. There, there are areas that some, some competition is okay, you know, but, yeah. but it's. Well, I mean, any, any jungle situation, these yeah. plants are competing for light in some sense, but it, in most cases, they're not. Um, destroying the soil in order to do so exactly um and there is no natural forest on earth that doesn't have um innumerable species in the same area there isn't you know this kind of decimation of anything that's not an oak in an oak area or you know in a redwood forest there are still bay trees and and oaks and you know there is a mix interdependent interdependence Yeah. yeah I asked for any favorite books. Well, one of the books that I, that's a touchstone for me is a, called Fup. It's, a, it's about a duck named Fup. Fup duck. Get it? <laughs> that is a joke in the book. Uh, but this is a very short, wonderful... It, it's hardly even a novella. It's a kind of a long, short story um, about the friendship between... Um, a young man and an old man and a duck and this book to me captures what makes life beautiful um, and in a way it it tells an ecological message and it tells in some ways the messages that we're that we're talking about about you know local community you have a local community in, in the case of this story if that's just three creatures a duck and an old man and a young man and they're kind of learning from each other and um, you can read it and 45 minutes, oh. and it's one of the most magical things ever written. Oh, that's cool. 
uh, like one of my favorite books, which I guess as a favorite I inherited from my mother, it's one of her favorite books, was Virginia Woolf's uh, memoir. Um, what's it called again? Uh, this long essay that she wrote about her childhood um, and just the, her ability to evoke these like uh, types of experiences uh, from childhood that are so like almost outside of language. Like her ability to sort of capture things that are really on the, on the edge of what language can do and kind of like pull them back in in, in a way so that you're suddenly like, oh wow, like I totally remember having exactly mm -hmm. that like mm -hmm. type of experience and what that felt like, you know, even though my experience was so different in terms of you know, time right. and context and so on. I thought Proust, uh, Proust yeah, that was that awesome quite too. beautifully yeah, yeah. as well. Yeah, totally. And that's definitely. one of the magical things about I reading him. I made it all the way through that did you? remembrance of things past. You did the whole... I did the whole... I have not done the whole thing. It was totally worth it. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I... I uh, that's impressive. Yeah. So in terms of um, sharing your, your vision of, of the world with uh, people outside of um, spiritual community, ayahuasca community, uh, for lack of a better word, the progressive community, I know you're going to be um, talking with uh, Infowars, for example, and I, I find that really interesting because um, uh, Infowars has challenged the status quo in many ways initially but my sense now is that the um, in my view the fictions that they're putting forth are the new status quo and I'd be curious to know how, how you whether you would agree or disagree with that or what your thought process is in, in uh, presenting or how you would present your um, way of thinking to people who are used to the Alex Jones way of thinking and how you could maybe connect with them yeah, I mean, I, so I've had a, just a very weird and interesting trajectory because, you know, just following what I felt was like a very authentic path that really began with a lot of skepticism and a lot of like rational, you know, empiricism, I've ended up, you know, being able to write about things like, you know, aliens, crop circles, psychic phenomena, you know, hyperdimensional entities, you know, and so on. And, uh, you know, whereas if you're, like, uh, writing for the New Yorker or the New York Times Magazine right. and trying to talk about any of the stuff, you just get X'd out. So I sort of feel that, like, it's interesting because, yeah, like, you know, I mean, the Trump thing is obviously potentially catastrophic on so many levels. But it has, like, you know, there, there, was, there were discourses that the mainstream was still not allowing. Like, I can't even get my book reviewed, and, and, you know, mm -hmm. the new book. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't even allow you, like, if you, if you stepped outside of a certain boundary... You were just, you know, either ignored or totally ridiculed or attacked, you know, so that's, I think, built up this pressure for people who feel they're not getting the whole story. Mm -hmm. and, and unfortunately, that's led to them gravitating to Trump. And there's like this whole area of like people who are into like who believe that, you know, vaccines may be causing autism. The government has suppressed that information. Um, but there is kind of a New World Order corporate conspiracy of like a Bilderberg group of a financial elite who do come together every year. And that, you know, the, the mainstream wasn't able to kind of address these deep, you know, kind of instinctual concerns that people were having. And some of it also is around aliens. Yeah, and yeah well, I think some, yeah. some of the concerns, as you pointed out, are valid. The yeah. notion of, of um, the control of, of our minds and our economy and our planet are... Um, you know that there are forces that are beyond you know the individual yeah. ability to understand. Um, the risk then is that you you go from challenging the status quo to kind of becoming the status quo because um, you're willing to but, but lie. I'm, 
I'm hoping, I'm hoping that... <laughs> That's my question. In terms of Info, info, info Jones. <laughs> info Wars and Alex Jones. I'm hoping... I don't think I'm going to get to interview with him exactly. I think it's one of the other hosts. But my hope would be that I can help to mend the gaps in the, in the worldview and the belief system. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, I think... You know, that's that's. I feel like I'm I'm sort of bridging between these different worlds. Cause like even for example, that you know, the, the the climate crisis, which is obviously something that you talk about in the book, and you know, is a real um, disaster that we're facing. You know, I met someone recently who is an Alex Jones listener, and he said to me very rationally that um, the climate is not warming. And then I said, well you know, it's been getting hotter every year. And he said, oh, well, that's just something that uh, the government is doing, spraying in order to make it hotter so that they can say that the planet is warming so that they can steal the energy industry's business and put it in the hands of government. That's a very long explanation for something that, you know, it's like Occam's razor. The simple explanation is there's a massive industry that's threatened by the results of its pollution, and so they're saying that, so they're coming up with this ridiculous conspiracy explanation. How do you, how do you imagine speaking to that so that you can bridge the gap? Um, I mean, I, I already just did this recently on Coast to Coast AM, which is a very like big radio show. It's like, um, but you just give it your best shot, you know? It's like, and, you know, and I think also it helps to, expand the parameters and not just talk about climate change but look at it i like the model from the stockholm resilience center of the nine planetary boundaries model because mm-hmm. it's like a kind of mm-hmm. inarguable like ocean acidification like the oceans didn't become 30 percent more acidic over the last 40 years for no reason that's just like you know I, you don't even hear climate change deniers denying that 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 has to do with the industrial co2 that the oceans are mm-hmm. absorbing and so if you can you know and then there's species extinction 150 to 200 species a day you know due to you know deforestation and you know what we're doing in the jungles and so on so like you know we can establish that first of all there's an ecological crisis now you know from my perspective it's obvious that you know the atmosphere is you know this big around the planet and we're filling it with co2 we know the stable climate was 275 parts per million carbon dioxide we now have over 400 parts per million you know, we seem to be pretty clear from the examination of like the ice core samples that the last time there was this much carbon in the atmosphere, you know, was significantly warmer and sea levels were significantly higher. The sea levels were what? Hundred feet higher. Hundred feet higher. So, um, and that just may be a matter, of, or that just seems to be a matter of time to melt the uh, ice caps completely for that to happen. Yeah. So, so if you present those facts. Um, your thought is that simply by it, do you think you're going to get challenged of somebody saying, "Well, that's not you know that's not actually what's happening. That's what they want you to think." Scientists are paid to lie to you. How do you respond to that? I mean, uh, you know, all, all you can really say is that you know you tried to use your discernment. You gave it the best shot. You read as many sources as you could, and you know, like I mean, you, you know, I've gone down these rabbit holes. Like I looked at Climate Gate, you know, and I feel it's totally. Um, you know, besides the point, I looked at Pizzagate. You know, even trying to find to be the the, the point of balance. You know, that that uh, helps to you know allow a little more sanity to be uh, infused in, in the discourse. Mm-hmm. I'll be but, very you know, interested. It may, it may be hopeless, but uh, what else are you going to do at this point? I watched somebody like Milo Yiannopoulos mm-hmm. get on like every major talk show, spewing garbage, and that that's what the culture you know seems to allow. You know, but if you want to talk about the systemic changes that we would need to make, 
you know, uh, as well as the level of changes we'd have to make in our mass consciousness and our society. You, know, you can't get that same kind of hearing. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it's uh, people seem to like these um, little interpersonal battles. So if he if he wants to attack feminists, as though feminists are destroying the country, um, that's easier in a way than. Saying, looking at our lifestyles. Yeah, then looking at our lifestyles and saying that the fact that you're driving an hour to work and using yeah. toner cartridges and, and those uh, coffee, you know, pellets, and then driving home again, that that's the problem. And that the corporations that are enabling that and encouraging you not to question that are the problem. Uh, that's, a, that's a tougher uh, pill to swallow for people. Yeah, and it's a very interesting time because everything has turned around and like, well, there's no certainty and it's like, I think it's going to get crazier and weirder. Yeah, in terms of, you know. well, that that's what's worrisome. I mean, for instance, me like, have you seen like the new technology where you can have anybody say anything in a video? Yeah. You know, so like, you know, if the right wing wants, they're going to have a, you know, at some point a tape will surface of Barack Obama saying, yeah, I loved wiretapping Trump, you know, yeah. and uh, I used to, you know, have, you know, whatever, like, I was born in Kenya, ha, 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 you know. Yeah. And then what's going to happen to what we think of as, like, evidence? It's going to be very, uh, it's going to get very murky very quickly. Yeah. And yeah. then also the truth, when truth does come out, it will be very easy for people to say, that's fabricated. So it's going to be, I mean, that's so why I think it's really directions. going to be about people coming together in communities face to face. It's going to be the only way you're going to be able to, like, really uh, feel some stability of, of coherence and uh, mm -hmm. you know, knowing that people are doing something together. I think some, the notion of Occam's Razor is going to be really important. Uh -huh. The notion that um, given the choice between a crazy conspiratorial explanation for something and a simple one, chances are, not, not the guarantee, but the chances are, the probability is, the simpler explanation tends to be the true one. Uh, do you think that's true, even? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I definitely feel there's like little bits of resonance right now with like the fall of Rome, you know, like Watergate, the, the rise of the Nazis or Mussolini or something. It feels mm -hmm. like, like it's like a spiral where all these little tones are now being like you know, that we didn't even expect to ever hear again in our lifetime. Yeah. You know, suddenly it's like that tone. Like, who would have thought that, like, rabid anti-Semitism would suddenly be, like, right. in the public, or white supremacism, or, like, uh, you know, uh, you know, Benedict Arnold-style, like, treason, you know? In terms right. of, I mean, it's like, it just feels like we've entered some other, like, twilight zone that has resonances yeah. with every, these periods we hear, hear about from the past but we don't really know how to deal with it because, you know, we thought we were just on this, like, smooth, like, everything was, like, you know, everything was, like, working. And, we you know, just the media need to push like things in the right direction. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I mean, and the thing that, that concerns me maybe the most now culturally is that we do have a, a strong questioning and resistance happening, which I think is great, um, but um, it would be relatively easy for um, people who want to solidify their power as Hitler did to um, trump up a terrorist attack. Oh, sure. And doing so would be a way of forcing everyone in lo into line and, and uh, using fear, um, as Hitler did with the burning of the Reichstag, to um, say, okay, I know a few months ago you were laughing at me and saying that I barely had enough power to hold together the government, but now um, I should have absolute control because there are enemies at our gates. My hope is that because people are aware of 
I mean, this is Alex Jonesian, but people are aware of false flags. They're aware of the, the possibility for um, terrorism or war to be used to control our minds. Uh, that um, if or when something horrible happens, um, my hope is that um, people are people will be wiser about reacting to it and uh, will recognize when their fears are getting played. Um, but I, I question. It feels like we're in a very like people are in a very shallow state of mind, really. Like um, anyway, yeah. It's anyway. The thing we can do, we just got to go through it. We're just here. <laughs> <laughs> Here's Daniel's advice for anyone who might be feeling alienated. I mean, like, well, I guess um, I can understand a lot of reasons why people might feel alienated or you know disenchanted. But you know, ultimately, we're responsible for our own reality, right? So. Um, and you know we know from history that individuals actually have tremendous power to like change themselves, change the world around them, change their communities, build communities. So I think if you're feeling you know like uh, like uh, there's no way forward, you just have to expand your imagination somehow and take a leap that maybe you've never leapt before. The problem with the ecological issue is that the wake-up call. Uh, could very well come when it's too late to change the reality, and that's the uh, that's the trap. It looked bad for the Rebel Alliance and Star Wars too, but you know they found that one <laughs> corridor, that beam, just like yeah. went into the heart of the Death yeah. Star, and boom, you know. Yeah, but you know, real life. I mean, that's the problem. Is climate change, for example, is a lot more complicated. You don't just fire fire a laser into a little <laughs> hole you got to change the way you think and behave that's true globally that's true and get everyone else to come on board with that idea yeah so no know. no it's just like the death star it's just like the death star <laughs> <laughs> just one good hit and all climate goes away you can follow host Ari Gold on Twitter and Instagram at Ari Gold, that's A-R-I-G-O-L-D, and on Facebook at Ari Gold Films. For more about the series director, visit moanred.com. That's M-O-A-N-R-E-D.